You're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. What an episode we have for you today. In part one, we've got Zenith's Peter Sand, Stiefel's Bruce Chan, Steph Loomis from US Florida Cargo Trans and Project 44's Josh Brazil. As well as all your usual analysis, you'll be hearing that the US peak season is already over. Why forward profits peaked in the second quarter and how poor congestion is set to continue to blight supply chains and could stymie your predictions of a rate crash. In part two, we've got possibly the most wide-ranging interview we've ever had on a Lodestar podcast. I'm talking to former Formula One team owner and a serial owner of airlines who, since the outbreak of pandemic, has become a major player in the air cargo market. And he has every intention of sticking around. It's the chairman of European Cargo, Paul Stoddart. So, no, they're not ready. And this one over the spare parts, Mike, to be honest, you can stop every aircraft as each aircraft breaks down. You won't have any parts to fit to it. If something's not done in the next few months, the UK carriers en masse are going to fall off a major cliff on the 1st of January. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Greetings, one and all. As trailed, we have a lot to cover today. First, some housekeeping. You can find the Lodestar podcast on all major platforms. It would be awesome if you could review, follow and subscribe. And if you have any thoughts or comments, you can reach me direct at MikeKing121 at gmail.com. Don't be shy. Big thanks also to those who have been in touch already. I had one note after the last podcast, the big summer catch up, which did make me chuckle. Last time out, probably a bit stupid this, but I I let slip the phrase favourite journalist. It just popped out. It was a bit dumb. So this email I got rightly pointed out that nobody actually has a favourite journalist, much the same as they don't have a favourite lawyer or taxman. It's a point that I must say it's very hard to argue against. Fortuitously then, my co-host today is neither a journalist or a taxman. It's Zenitor's chief analyst, Peter Sand. Hello, Peter. Hi, Mike. Uh, I'm extraordinarily pleased to be your co-host today with uh, our raft of exciting events, uh, left, right and centre in the ocean shipping market. So take it away. Where do you think analysts rank then, Peter, in terms of that, you know, the least liked professions? Or are you one of the most liked professions? Are you above journalists, you'd say? Just above a, a, a second-hand car deal, I guess. How about a politician <laughs> or a priest? I think in, a priest, perhaps. Uh, no, I think in, in essence, uh, I mean, it's becoming very personal uh, in, in, in the sense that when you express your views, if you have the guts to be out there and debate it, I mean, people, uh, if people can connect to what you're saying and if it makes sense on a consistently trustworthy uh, basis, then it doesn't really matter if you're a priest or a second-hand car dealer. Then people tend to believe in you. Even journalists, uh, you may believe from time to time. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Well, everyone believes in you, and that's why I'm glad to have you on. And I'll just go straight into this. We're going to have a bunch of guests on this Low Star podcast later on. We'll be looking at what's driving key origin and destination markets on air and ocean. But 
let's just look at those rates for now. Where on the shipping side are we in terms of spot and contract rates on the key Asia, Europe and Trans-Pacific trades at the moment? Well, if we look at those main trades that uh, moves a lot of cargo from uh, from east uh, to west and focusing on spot rates from Far East to, to U.S. West Coast, Canada uh, have uh, rates trending down some 13% from a month ago. Uh, we are now speaking uh, in the very late days of August. So a clear trend in the spot market from Far East to U.S. Uh, West Coast. And if we go to the East Coast, spot rates are also trending down, but at a slower pace. And that uh, basically brings me into what the American shippers often put into focus, uh, the spread between the two coasts uh, that, uh, that right now seems to be almost at record high level. Around $3,100 for a box is the cost spread between bringing it into the West Coast and the East Coast. And of course, that should normally be around $1,000, $1,100 in normal days. But I think it's fair to conclude that nothing is normal right now, but uh, especially on the congestion side of things, that is elevating the rates on the spot market for far east to a U.S. East Coast. And speaking of the U.S. East Coast, I mean, it's not only from Far East that could seek to uh, to get imported uh, to to the U.S. via the East Coast or the Gulf Coast. So if we go transatlantic from North Europe into uh, to the U.S. East Coast, that is the trend that defies uh, the global trend of a uh, falling spot rates uh, because that have developed somewhat flat over the uh, past couple of uh, months. It's basically been trending sideways around $8,650 per FAUS as, as per Senita data. So that is defying the trend. And of course, that's when you move cargo from one massively congested area to another massively congested area. Peter, very interesting what you say there about the transatlantic market booking trends. I was talking to TAC Index about air cargo rates, in fact. They're sort of generally holding level. Um, Chinese issues of, of cleared up, but there, but there seems to be a general consensus that the lack of demand out is the major driver of the market at the moment, but the rates are moving a great deal. But where we are seeing some movements, while we've got, say, Frankfurt to the US, Hong Kong to the US is down substantially year on year, we're still seeing big increases even week to week at the end of August. Chicago to Europe was up 1.6%, and that market in terms of rate is up 21.2% year on year. So that transatlantic market's very interesting. I think it's massively interesting and uh, it's it's the one market that defies gravity. And still, a lot of essential goods are moved uh, from Europe into North American East Coast. And uh, as Senela uh, is also covering uh, air analysis now in addition to ocean analysis, we can definitely also see that there is a lot of spillover between the two markets. I mean, uh, what we hear from major New York importers is that they're literally being very outspoken, saying that, okay, we cannot rely on ocean shipping during times like this, so we need to fly it all in. And I must say also that if you are an uh, American uh, importer on the U.S. East Coast, and particularly flying goods in from Europe, you are spoiled right now with the capacity being offered. But I must say that it's the odd one out right now in, in global logistics, the transatlantic going east, going west. But still, it's massively interesting to see that that one market is, is capable of, of, say, delivering something completely different from the global trend, which is definitely going south right now in, in the spot market. We're going to come back to where the shipping peak season is globally. But if there is a divergence between what's happening in Europe with the economy there and the U.S., and I also want to speak to you about liner profits, because obviously we've had the Q2 results out and more record results there from most of the top carriers. But first, let me turn to the forwarding sector and bring in Bruce Chan, who's the director 
and Senior Analyst for Global Logistics and Future Mobility Equity Research at Default. Hello, Bruce. Hi, Mike. I know that's a mouthful. I want to say a big thank you to you for having me on today. Thank you very much for joining me. Now, I'm going to launch straight into some of the analysis that you've been doing on those Q2 results, particularly in relation to the global forwarding sector. You put out a great report. And reading through that, two things that struck me were, A, how robust forwarding returns actually were, and B, that you guys at Stiefel now believe that Q2 was likely the peak of the cycle for forwarders. So why did forwarders do so well? And where do you think the sector itself goes from here? Yeah, it's a great question, Mike. And I think calling a peak has been somewhat perilous over the last couple of years, uh, partially because this has been such a volatile environment. But I think what we've seen transpire over the last several months, um, perhaps over the last couple quarters, is volumes certainly moderating as demand has been cooling a little bit, albeit on a, on a relative basis, on a year-over-year basis from really record levels. Uh, but I think the basis for the call was on yield. What we saw was very, very strong yield in 2Q. We saw more resilience on that front than I think you know the market expected. At this point, I think we'll continue to see strong yields into the back half of the year, but based on where spot prices are trending, based on where demand is trending, we'll probably see some moderation in, in those numbers as well. We've seen a softening of that ocean freight market as the peak season has approached this year. What takeaways did you get from those Q2 results from forwarders on where ocean freight might go and how this will impact forwarder returns? Yeah, so I think you've got a few different facets at play here. Number one is obviously demand based on some of the things that we've been seeing with global instability, with energy prices, with inflation. Demand has moderated a bit. And I think that's tempered some of the expectations for demand going into peak season. On the congestion side, we've seen congestion ease a little bit. I think that has added a little bit of more fluidity to supply chains. We've seen shipper inventories have a chance to build up. Those prudent shippers have built inventories earlier in the year. You know, I think out of uh, caution and abundance of caution, perhaps, that there would be disruption later in the year. And and that should also slow some of the ocean freight demand and, and thus pricing as we move into the back half of the year. But by and large, I think shippers are playing the cautious game here. They are locking in capacity for the ocean peak season. So, you know, we do have still a a good baseline level of activity as we move into the end of the year. Looking at that end of the year, which is obviously when there's the peak season from the air cargo side, what's the outlook for air cargo yields for forwarders? We've got some passenger capacity starting to come back on key lanes. Forwarders are also expecting some air-to-ocean conversion to limit their returns. Is that is that the case? Yeah, I think that's very fair. And I think it's important, too, to differentiate between the underlying capacity pricing and then what goes on with the flow-through forwarder yields. So first, on the capacity side, you're absolutely right. We're seeing some conversion at this point from air-to-ocean. We are seeing some passenger belly space start to come back into the market, especially on the transatlantic lanes. and that is cooling pricing a little bit, but I think on the forwarder side, you know, where the forwarders really benefit is on the disruption front. When you think about all these large shippers that need to lock in capacity, they need these additional services in addition to just the capacity costs. And uh, they're relying on the, on the big freight forwarders to do that for them. And, and that's what's really bolstering, I think, the yield as we think about, you know, all the disruption that's going on around us and what the outlook is for the back half of the year. So, we think that yield will stick with us for a few more months, uh, but certainly we're seeing a, a cooling in air freight capacity pricing. There was a pretty consistent take by forwarders on 
retail markets. Firstly, there seems to be a consensus that the transition from goods to services is moving to something more normal or pre-pandemic in, in terms of demand. And secondly, that that demand amidst these economic headwinds we're all being buffeted by is currently far stronger in the US than Europe. So what does this mean in terms of how we view what lies ahead for cargo flows and bottom lines of forwarders and others, I suppose, in the freight and logistics business? I would say certainly we're expecting some mean reversion. When you think about what's gone on over the past two years, I don't think there's anybody out there that expected air cargo rates to stay at three times what they were on a pre-pandemic basis, you know, ocean freight rates to stay at five, 10, in some cases, even more times what they were on a pre-pandemic basis. But I'd caution your listeners and your viewers out there to assume that we're going to go immediately back to pre-pandemic levels because there are some very important changes that have taken place. And I think e-commerce is a great example. You know, when you think about e-commerce, we estimate that trends pulled forward by three to five years. There's been a change in how supply chains are built in response to that. There's been a change in consumer adoption and uptake rates and things like grocery and restaurant delivery, e-commerce penetration as a whole. And that's going to have lasting effects on the supply chain. And as a result, I think lasting effects on air cargo volumes, air cargo yields, air cargo rates. Same thing is true of ocean. Nearshoring is another great example. It's a trend that we've been talking about for decades. But I think one of the things that the pandemic has done is really shine a light on resilience of supply chains. And that's really changing how things have been built as well. So I would absolutely say there's going to be some mean reversion in, in terms of rates, in terms of demand activity, but I'd, I'd be careful in saying that things are going to go completely back to how they were pre-pandemic. Your report notes that forwarders themselves unanimously believe that post-pandemic freight rates and yields won't return to pre-pandemic levels in ocean freight and they'll probably stay higher than they were for air freight too. And Kuna and Nagel was particularly bullish on rates. What's the reasoning on this beyond what you've just said, specific to 23, if that's okay? Yeah, absolutely. So just picking up on where I left off, when you think about these big changes that have happened in the supply chain, you know, really where the forwarders add value is consultative help. You know, they have a lot of experience, a lot of expertise, a lot of technological tools, and a lot of resources to help even the largest shippers manage through supply chain challenges. So they do well in very disrupted markets. Certainly the last few years have been very disrupted, but when you think about those things like supply chain redesign on the basis of nearshoring, on the basis of procurement and production, de-risking, when you think about e-commerce trends, all those fit perfectly into the wheelhouse of these consultative expertise and, and consultative qualifications on the part of the freight forwarders. And I think that's going to continue to drive yields above where they were perhaps pre-pandemic, even if not to the same levels as they were over the last two, two and a half years. Bearing all that in mind, Bruce, which of the big forwarders do you see as best equipped to cope as we enter these, I guess, choppy waters? You know, I think the two things that we've seen really help large forwarders and really any transportation and logistics provider manage through the more difficult periods of the cycle are, number one, nimbleness via technology and then also via variable cost structure. Um, I'd say on the technology front, Certainly DSV and, and Kuninago have been very strong. When I think about variable cost models, expeditors has always been very, very good. They've been able to flex down on those personnel costs, especially to weather the storm. So uh, I think you've got a pretty good selection of large freight forwarders that have seen many of these cycles. They know how to navigate them. And I think we'll do just fine, even if the stocks take a little bit of a hit. 
And finally, Bruce, are you expecting more M&A activity in the next 12 months, either by forwarders or integrators? Or maybe we'll see some of these uh, cash-rich container lines coming in, possibly for a big fish? Absolutely. I think uh, logistics in general is a space that has been consolidating over the past decade or so and likely will continue to consolidate. On the forwarder front, you see a few very well-heeled providers out there that have been very smart about preserving capital, preserving cash through times of difficulty, and they'll deploy that when the market is opportunistic. And it's certainly becoming more opportunistic from a valuation perspective, because what we saw through 2021 was obviously peak valuation, very, very inflated valuation, arguably companies over-earning and pegging their valuation to those earnings. So you know, as the environment normalizes, I think the environment will become a little bit more buyer-friendly. Uh, you'll probably see more activity out there in the marketplace. Bruce Chan, thank you very much for joining me on the Lodestar podcast today. Pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. So, Mr. Sand, uh, just listening to Bruce there, as company valuations fall, we could be seeing a lot more M&A activity in the logistics market. What's your take on this? We've had these massive Q2 profits for container lines. Are you expecting them to start splurging some of the cash they've made? I think exactly pointing to uh, to the valuation argument was something that you and I debated also a couple of months ago, where I uh, I subscribe to 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 the same opinion that uh, that it may be a better time soon for carriers to spend their profits, enhancing their logistics offerings in an environment where companies may not be priced where they were just a half a year ago. But if we are looking into uh, at least what carriers are spending money on right now, they are still buying more and more new container ships. Just going back to the most recent two months here, we are seeing more than 50 more ships being contracted, adding another 320 TEUs to an already bloated uh, order book. And I, when I say bloated, is of course because I, I tend to see that 2023, 2024, and also 2025 is now becoming quite huge delivery years. So carriers need to spend that went for profits uh, well, and, and it may not be wisely to uh, spend them more on uh, ships right now than, than is already being ordered. So look at the offerings to your customers. I think it's it's fair to say that liners are definitely on the offense right now in terms of carving in on the offering that you tend to see only from freight forwarders. So naturally, you would also see in the coming quarters, I would say, over the coming year, the appetite for carriers to acquire perhaps small to medium-sized freight forwarders also. But in conclusion, if I may, we have not seen many outright M&A purchases outside, say, MSC or or Maersk in in the earlier days and and a little bit of CMA now spending money on, say, forking out rebates to domestic uh, customers. Uh, So I think much more is in uh, the making in terms of carrier acquisitions going forward. Valuations may come down, but they may still be asked to pay top dollar. So they need to spend wisely. Uh, otherwise, they might as well just hand them back to the investments. Like we saw Maersk uh, announcing that, that they will do as they re- realize also that they cannot spend all these money themselves just from making uh, M&A activities uh, in, a, in a smart way going forward, benefiting the investors. And, and do you think we've seen peak line of profitability in Q2 or, or does this carry on for a few more quarters or years? Check out the uh, Sonata XSI because that is literally an indication of all valid long-term contracts right now, and they are still going up. Uh, So in essence, shippers are still paying more for the volumes they move in the contract market than ever before. To me, that 
indicates that the line of profits are going to go up again in the third quarter, most probably also for Q4, as the composition of volumes being moved by carriers uh, tend to favor right now volumes in the long-term contract market against volumes in the spot market. So I would not be surprised to see carrier profits exceed those of, of the second quarter in the third quarter, and then time will tell how things will turn out for the fourth quarter. There's an argument out there, Peter, that container line of profits have become inextricably linked to the poor performance of ocean shipping logistics. And this is down to the many bottlenecks that are out there that tie up capacity and which could continue to tie up capacity for quite a, a long period, even as some of those ship deliveries come on board. I want to look at those bottlenecks and how all this is playing out from a forwarding perspective. And it's my pleasure to welcome to the Lodestar podcast, Stephanie Loomis, Vice President for Procurement at New York-based Cargo Trans. You're actually in Indiana at the moment, aren't you, Steph? I am. I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana. Well, thanks for coming on the, uh, the Lodestar podcast. I've got quite a few things I wanted to ask you about, Steph. You guys, you mainly work with smaller importers and exporters. And I was wondering, as someone in the business of procuring freight for those customers, on a scale of one to 10, how smoothly would you say global supply chains are running at the moment? I would say it's recently gone from being probably a three, four-ish for some of our customers, improving to more like a six or a seven. But, you know, to give you some context, a lot of our customers, I think, are feeling a little bit of whiplash over the just the short last few months, because only back in March or April, we were advising them and warning them that as we all waited for Shanghai to reopen, that they should be prepared that space was going to get tight again, that capacity was going to get constrained, and they should be prepared to give us a forecast. And look where we are today. Now it's book away in China and relatively easy to get on a ship and rates are rapidly declining. So the origin part of supply chains are starting to ease up. We're still obviously dealing with congestion and disruption on the U.S. side and the destination side of the supply chain, but at least on the origin side, things are getting better. Steph, you mentioned obviously there's a few bottlenecks in the U.S. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, we are still digging our way out of the disruptions and chaos that ensued after all of the volume that came crushing into the United States uh, during and after the pandemic, if you can say it's after the pandemic. But things seemed to be shifting. While China was locked down for a few months and we had some easing of volumes during that time period, the West Coast was able to sort of dig their way out and get themselves in a much better position. But then we had a lot of people diverting cargo away from the West Coast out of fear of the labor negotiation situation with the longshoremen out there, that now we have massive amounts of congestion off the eastern seaboard. So depending on which port exactly, but most of them are under some pretty strong duress right now with long vessel queues and, and long wait times for berths and creating all kinds of drama. How much uncertainty is there in terms of, I don't know, time from arrival at port to destination? I mean, does it is it highly variable? Does it depend by port? Where's the best? Where's the worst? Yeah, it is. I would say that anywhere from a week to up to three weeks of additional wait time, depending on which port exactly you're talking about. Savannah, for instance, although they have the longest vessel queue, 
you know, they've increased terminal space. They have additional cranes and the ability to move massive amounts of volume through there. So their wait times are not nearly as bad as you would think based just on their vessel queue. But then you go north up to New York, New Jersey, and although their vessel queues are not as long, their wait times are running two weeks and above. And part of that is they don't have the same amount of terminal space. They don't have the same number of cranes operating, but it's still, it's quickly becoming, it took over Long Beach for being the number two port in the United States as far as volume and not nearly having the space and the capacity to handle that kind of volume. And that on the East Coast is still the number one port. So you still have the vast majority of the volume coming in from Asia into the New York, New Jersey port operation. And of course, it also has the double whammy of being the transatlantic. And we're seeing huge increase in volumes coming out of Europe. I think the last stat I read was something close to 40% increase this year on imports coming in from Europe versus last year. And of course, most of that freight comes in to New York, New Jersey. You know, Norfolk picks up some, but they're really dealing with just a crush. Um, you know, and then you can throw India in the mix. The vast majority of the Indian freight comes in to New York, New Jersey. So they're really dealing with a mix of all the trade lanes volumes being increased. We've heard a lot this year about people shipping early because there were people there was people worried about what's going on on the West Coast and how that might affect things. And, and as you said earlier, you, you were telling some of your customers, we need to know what you're going to ship and when early on this year. And now things have eased a bit. Is it the case that we've already seen the big inflow of cargo for this peak season or have you still got plenty in that pipeline? I would say that peak this year came and went without anybody noticing. Everybody was waiting for it and it never, it never really came because so much freight was moved early. The biggest retailers, you know, the big guys, the Walmarts, the Targets had really put through a lot of their early back to school and holiday goods very early. And, and, and even when China was shut down, Ningbo had a huge increase in volume coming out of Ningbo which was freight diverted from Shanghai. Well, it was the biggest importers that had the bandwidth and the ability and just the ability cost-wise to make those moves and make those adjustments. So while everybody were, you know, I had heard anywhere from 250,000 to 300,000 containers of backlogged freight in Shanghai just never happened. So what I would say about our customer base is the small to mid-sized importers have remained relatively consistent. Our volumes have dropped a little bit, but we still have customers that are nervous and anxious to get their freight here for the holidays. But what the market is telling us and what the carriers have heard from their largest customers is that there is no more big influx of volume coming. It's, it's going to slowly decline from here. Peak season is dead, says Steph Loomis. We've got our headline for this podcast. <laughs> uh, you talked about the port there. How is the intermodal side at the moment in the US? How is out of the port, for, for firstly? But I mean, secondly, you know, how the rail networks performing? There's been quite a lot of publicity about them. Pretty badly. There obviously was a situation much like the ocean carriers did at the beginning of the pandemic when there was a fear that we were going to go into some kind of financial freefall. And no one would buy anything. And so the rails, like the carriers, pulled a lot of the capacity out of the market. I'm sure laid off employees, took great lengths to control costs in the situation where volumes weren't there. 
But in my opinion, they really reacted slowly to getting back into normal patterns. Some of that was, if you look at a year ago, during the most volatile point in volumes coming into the United States during the peak of summer last year, you did have the carriers basically saying, we're not going to take bookings to Midwest IPI points. They just refused to give you a through bill of lading to a Chicago, a Kansas City, a Minneapolis. So, it, you know, everybody had to transload their Midwest cargo in California or New York. And obviously that caused the rail capacity to not increase it. But again, it's almost like even when the carriers started taking IPI cargo again, the rails have just not reacted and they haven't put the number of cars needed and, and they're struggling to get enough labor in the door. And, and obviously the labor that is there, it's now contentious and we have the potential of a strike happening later on in the fall. Fingers crossed that doesn't happen. So it's, it's a real mess. I mean, you've got intermodal containers waiting upwards of almost three weeks is pretty much the average for dwell times in California to get your Midwest container onto the rail and moving into your destination. It's really a problem. I think there was a shift a few years ago to profits over service that we're, we're now really paying for. At the end of the day, our rail system in the United States is, is a critically important part of our infrastructure that if it doesn't work well, can really cause some massive problems for many, many different industries and many different commodities that, that rely on it. And it sounds like these problems have been building for quite some time. Do you see any end in sight or is this something that shippers just need to get used to if they're going to use intermodal? Well, eventually we're going to dig our way out of this overwhelming amount of congestion that, you know, what's happened is as the West Coast has, has dwindled down their congestion with vessel queues and a lot of that cargo ultimately was destined to come into the interior of the United States. So the terminals being overloaded in different locations like Kansas City is in a real in a real mess of Dallas and Chicago was bound to happen because these volumes eventually were going to make their way to their final home. So we will dig our way out of this. I listen to a lot of different experts in the industry, and, and I think people are pretty accurate when they're saying maybe Q2 of next year, things will finally start to, you know, you hate to use the word normal in supply chain anymore, but I think we're looking at at least another six to 10 months before the congestion from the pandemic finally kind of dissipates. And then we'll see. I mean, it depends on on if the rail, you know, the rail and the carriers have to work well together, right? I don't think anyone in this country wants to see transloading out of California as much as the transloaders do be the normal way they have to bring their business into the Midwest. Um, we have to have a decent rail operation that moves smoothly and consistently. Does this play into, I guess, inventory management? There must be issues in warehouses as well as the DCs and the yards. Oh, all of that is, this is one big giant puzzle with each piece having its own issues. The terminals are not overloaded only because of the amount of volume that came from Asia. They're overloaded because importers aren't picking up their containers quickly enough and they're not, not picking up their containers because they want to pay storage. Their warehouses are full. Their DCs are full. Their truckers' yards are full. There's just a tremendous amount of volume of cargo in our country. So many different facets of the supply chain were impacted that it's like 
trying to drain a huge lake through a small hose. It just takes a long time for all of this to normalize itself. There's been some quite big talk about U.S. imports slumping, falling off cliff, etc. this year. I mean, we've already declared uh, peak season dead on this podcast. <laughs> but what, what sort of impression are you getting of your customers about where things happen later in the year into 2023? I mean, how are they feeling about the economy? Are they feeling confident? Are they reining their necks in a little bit, you know, taking care just to see what happens? I have often said we we put so much focus on this industry, on the biggest importers, which I get it. Obviously, you take the top 10 retail importers in the United States, they're over 50% of the volume. So I, I completely understand the focus on that. But often it's the small to mid-sized companies that, you know, those customers that we have that are more retail-centric are probably a little more nervous than those that are more on the traditional manufacturing side. But overall, I would say that our customer base, although trepidatious, there's no big plans for anybody to drop their volumes significantly. They're hopeful about the future. And again, with the focus being on the big guys, there's obviously a lot of nervousness, right? I mean, I think everybody heard Walmart announce that they had canceled billions of orders. So for the overall market, we're, we're certainly in for an interesting next three to four months. I think it's going to be a wild ride, especially as far as rates go. I don't know that I see a bottom at this point. There's very little the carriers can do to stop the rate declines. So it's going to be interesting. Again, my customers are loving it because they don't have a lot of fixed rate contracts. And so they're happy to see the rates finally coming down. Boots on the other foot all of a sudden, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see a few more blank sailings. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. What's interesting though, and, and you can take this for what it's worth. I've heard from several people, the rumor in the market that really it was one of the big guys that started this rate decline and they're in the 2M and they start with an M. I'll leave it with that. <laughs> <laughs> and their hope is to drive some of these small niche carriers out of the business. So there is some purpose behind what they're doing. Because I'm surprised too. I really expected to see a lot more blank sailings as we started to see these rates decline so aggressively. But if that's the case, if that's the strategy right now, then I, I like I said, I, I, I just recently posted on LinkedIn that I'm completely expecting to see a $3,000 rate probably in the next several weeks. So we'll, we'll see. Steph Loomis, uh, thanks for coming on today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Mike. I really enjoyed it. It was fun. I love your podcast. Peter, quite a lot to chew on there from Steph Loomis. I'm guessing from your previous comments, you don't really agree with Steph that we've got a spot and contract rates crash ahead of us. She's predicting rates as low as $3,000 per FEU into the US from China in the coming weeks. You don't, I think. I would love to see freight rates on the spot and long-term contract market floored anytime soon, at least from a shipper's perspective. But I don't see a crash ahead of us like that. We are seeing still a gradual spot rate market across the globe on those many main lane trades. Uh, and if we just focus on Far East to Europe, for instance, that's down 12% over the last month. So things are clearly trending down. But if you were to ask me of, a, of an immediate crash in, in spot rates, I would say no. We have consistently seen a gradual decline in the spot market rates. We are going to expect that to continue. What we are also expecting to continue is at some point in time that we will see those long-term contract rates also start to decline. 
They are not heading south at rapid pace. They are gradually declining on the Far East to U.S. East Coast. We did, by mid-August, see spot rates falling below that of long-term contract rates. And that is, of course, something that you should watch out for, the pace at which long-term contract rates catch up with the falling spot rates going forward. I think that is of essence to, uh, to most shippers out there right now. How do you see the divergence between what's going on in the US where you're questioning whether there's a recession and it, it seems we haven't seen this crash in imports as some predicted. How does that compare to Europe, what we've seen in Europe? I think the, the driver of the market remains US. We see still volumes being slightly up from last year into US. So again, we're not seeing volume imports crash anytime soon into Europe. Uh, I see more more risk in rapidly falling spot rates. That could be, let's let's say, the upside risk in that sense. But it obviously comes from the fact that volumes moved into into Europe have fallen by four and a half percent in the first half of this year, and we do not see a massive easing of of economic headwinds in Europe, especially coming into uh, the autumn and winter season with the uh, still elevated gas prices and electricity prices uh, across Europe. We are seeing potentially, at least it's being debated, if some European businesses should do what they are also being asked to do in, in China right now, basically stop production for a couple of days and weeks if possible in order to save electricity for the use of other purposes and other businesses and private households, literally. So I would, I would stay more worried about, say, the health of European economics uh, coming into this final straight of, uh, of the year, as the headwind is just so much clearer in Europe than it is in the US. Thanks, Peter. That's great. Let's have a look at these port disruptions in the US and in Europe in a bit more detail. I'd like to welcome to the Lodestar podcast, Josh Brazil, who's VP for Supply Chain Insights at Project 44. Hello, Josh. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I will push on with some questions for you. And it is about this port congestion that we're seeing in various places around the world. And Project 44 has been tracking this. Can you tell me what's going on in the, in the US at the moment? What should we expect in terms of delays and rollovers on the East Coast and the West Coast? Sure. So, Mike, have you heard about the Disneyland effect? Uh, no, I haven't, I don't think. Please explain. Have you taken your family to Disneyland at any point? Have you been there yourself? I, I think I've been more than my kids, which is quite a sad indictment of uh, <laughs> my parenting. <laughs> the poor things, they're older now. They don't need to go anymore. Yeah, they've been. I have been. So I don't know, you know if you had it when you went, but what you do when you go to Disneyland is you get an app and it tells you which rides have the longest line and which ones have the shortest line. So if you want to go on a ride, you basically check your app and see which ones have the shortest line. But the problem is that everybody does that. So what happens if you want to go to a roller coaster that has a short line, everybody rushes over there and then all of a sudden that line gets really long really fast. And that's called the Disneyland effect. And that's kind of what's happening on the West Coast versus East Coast. We've seen shippers avoid the West Coast, right? Because on the West Coast, you still have the ILWU unions, they don't have a contract and they don't have an extension on that contract yet. So that's made shippers pretty nervous about if a strike is going to happen there. So what some of them have done is shifted to the East Coast. And we've seen the congestion, especially at the port of Savannah, really explode over the past four months or so. But we've also seen on the Gulf Coast, Houston, and we also saw a bit in New York and New Jersey there. Savannah's kind of been hit the worst. Right now, there's about 36 vessels waiting offshore. 
And so that means 36 vessels that are waiting seven to 10 days on average. And we've been following the, the TEU increases coming into there as well. And they've seen a 20% increase in, in TEUs that they've handled. That's fully loaded import, export, and empties from March to July. So 20% is a lot. And that's been causing you know, shipment delays at Savannah. So they're looking at like about 15 days of shipment delays at the moment. And that has been going on also at Houston, where there's been a, over 20 vessels waiting outside. And in New York, there was about 14. There's a little bit less right now, seven to eight vessels at this point. But it really goes to show just how sensitive the East Coast ports are to that extra TEU capacity being shifted. But on the other side, you've seen the drop on the West Coast with Long Beach actually dropping in TEU volume. And, and Los Angeles has been fairly stable. Josh, very good summation there of what's going on the East Coast, West Coast in terms of those delays. Is anyone outperforming their rivals at the moment? Yeah, so really interesting because the Port of Charleston is really actually going a bit against the grain and cutting down on its backlogs of ships waiting at birth there. So although they had some problems at the beginning of the year, they've actually made some really good investments. Um, they've had an investment over, of over $2 billion, which they've expanded the yard and support space, the infrastructure, and they've implemented some really practical policies too. So one of those is, for example, giving birth priority to vessels that carry out more cargo which makes sense, right? And then secondly, prioritizing shipping lines that take empties out. So those empty containers are always kind of the bad actors in a lot of ports that cause a lot of congestion where they can't get those empties out. On top of that, they've also hired staff. Staff is also a big issue. So they've hired something like 150 more port operators. They've opened gates on Sunday for carriers. And then they also have, lastly, their smart chassis pool. So they have a smart pool fleet of about 13,000 chassis that they offer to their port customers. All of these policies and investments have really paid off. At thelodestar.com, we'll be following all of those issues in the US and seeing how they play out over the next few weeks as we move into what has traditionally been the peak shipping season, which will be the subject, I'll just put a little plug in here, of our next podcast, a deep dive into exactly that issue. But Josh, if I may, can we pivot very subtly and elegantly to Europe, we'll stay on ports. And I'm going to call it the summer of discontent. We've had strikes in Germany. We've had strikes at Felixstowe. As we're talking at the end of August, we've got issues. That we, we don't really know what's going to happen at the port of Liverpool. And with some of these strikes, there's been supportive action elsewhere in Europe as well, where people haven't wanted to handle cargo that's been diverted, etc. But I really want to hear from you is, Based on your historical data, can you explain to our listeners what a strike or a port closure really does? What's the domino effect from that? Yeah, yeah. So this year has just been incredible. And in the number of strikes that we've seen from South Korea to, to Germany, to the Netherlands, to the US, and now in the UK, right? So we followed some of these strikes and they kind of, they all have different backgrounds and they, and they differ depending on kind of the unique circumstances of who strikes and how long, but some patterns are pretty consistent. And what we see is the first, I guess, victim of, of a strike in terms of the supply chain is those import dwell times at the port. And what was kind of interesting is that we saw how fast those dwell times just shoot up once a strike occurs, right? So with the AB5 protests that happened in Oakland in July, the truckers who were protesting this law 
they managed to shut down operations there for, I think, two days. And so just this very brief shutdown of operations quickly just shot up the average dwell time for containers up to over two weeks. So in some containers, we're stuck there for more than 30 days after that. So once the port strike takes place, those import containers get stuck at the port very, very quickly. When we looked at Busan in South Korea, there was a two-week trucker strike. And so those dwell times jumped from four to 14 days within that first week. And that's about a 238%. At Bremerhof, and again, only a short strike, two days, that jumped 40% from six to nine days. So any strike that happens, we can expect those import containers to just get stuck really quick and uh, don't expect them to get them out of the port very quickly. Uh, apart from that, you know, it really depends on how long the strike takes place, right? So once something goes over a week, you're definitely going to see blank sailings increase. They're going to start rerouting to different ports. But if it's two, two to three days, generally the carriers will not blank sail and they'll kind of wait it out and see if they can still get those containers in. But with the port of Felix, though, it's eight days. So I think that's going to have big, big implications on, on the UK's supply chain. Obviously, all of this will have a, a very detrimental effect on those European supply chains, uh, especially when we've already had capacity issues on rail and, and road. And, and over the summer, we've had those key river arteries have been struggling with low water. Josh, what does all of this do to transit times from Asia into Europe? Okay. Yeah. The great question, Mike. Actually, the Asia to Europe train lane is the only trade lane that hasn't been worsening in terms of cargo lead times. So we measure cargo lead times. That's from the port of loading to the port of discharge. And why has that Asia Europe trade lane performed well? Primarily because of the resilience of the major Asian ports, especially in China. So you have these huge port complexes like Shanghai and Yantian, and they've really successfully worked to reduce the vessel queues that built up, you know, over the first half of the year with the Corona lockdowns. They have very large ports. They're automated. They have lots of yard space and lots of staff. So those queues get cleared out very quickly. But, so that's the big but. But lead times are still significantly higher than their pre-pandemic average. So those lead times, which are now at 46 days, uh, that's a bit lower than what their peak was in March 2022 at, at 52 days, but it's still much higher than the pre-pandemic average of 29 days. So improvements, but still a long ways to go before we get back to a normal transit time between Asia and Europe. Josh Brazil, thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's been a pleasure. As we heard from Josh there, Peter, we've had a rash of strikes in, in Northern Europe, which has proven very disruptive. How does this play out for European shippers? Some of these big European economies, the UK and Germany, are looking like they might go into recession. This is where we're really seeing these economic headwinds. How are you currently viewing the strength of the European market and demand as we look towards the end of this year and move into 2023? And what about these port disruptions in terms of those supply chains? I think the industrial uh, actions are just making a bad day worse for uh, European shippers because they are surely being faced by uh, a lot of headwind from consumer demand also. But the fact that they are seeing like a port of Felixstowe closing down one week, keeping the option open uh, of, say, more weeks to come shortly with disruptions is just making it terrifically 
difficult to manage those uh, those supply chains that you would just like to deliver goods on time as expected. So having problem from ports, facilities not working in the way they should, would, could, adds on top of headwind from, well, increased pressure from geopolitical aspects. Naturally, the gas prices and uh, the electricity bill is uh, exploding for many uh, European consumers. And we have seen that also for the volumes being moved into to Europe in, in most recent month. So I think European shippers are definitely in for a rough ride in the coming month and, and quarters. In part two, I'm going to be speaking to former Formula One team owner, Paul Stoddart, who is a coming force in air cargo due to his fast expanding European cargo freighter fleet. But first, Peter Sand, thanks once more for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. Always a pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. Welcome to part two of this episode of the Lodestar podcast. And as trailed, we have a treat for you today. My next guest has been an airline operator for many years. He will also be a familiar face to any viewer interested in motor racing and Formula One. Since the pandemic, the company chairs European Cargo has quickly become a major player in air cargo with its rapidly expanding fleet of converted freighters which operate globally. Paul Stoddart, welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Hello, Mike. We're going to come back to your uh, your fleet shortly, Paul, but um, thanks for coming on today. I want to just get something out of the way which I think our, our listeners will be interested in. You got into European aviation in 1986, but you were also involved in Minardi Formula One. A lot of our listeners are into Formula One. What what was your uh, involvement and, and was it exciting? Uh, well, I was involved in Formula One from 96 and I bought the Minardi team at the end of 2000, ran it for five years, then sold it out to Red Bull. But we're still to this day running the Minardi two-seater car, which gives people either the ride of their life or the pride of their life usually both. And for its sins, it's the most driven Formula One car in history. 70 Formula One drivers, 10 of them world champions, two of them reigning world champions when they drove the car. So it's something to be pretty proud of. We've given 4,000 people the ride of their life or the pride of their life, including royalty, including prime ministers, pop stars, etc., etc. over the last 18 years. And do you do all that in the UK or is that worldwide? No, well, this year we're running it with Red Bull. So we had uh, the reigning world champion, Max Verstappen, drive the car in uh, in July. We also had the Toro Rosso drivers as well, which is my old team, Minardi, which originally became Toro Rosso and now is Alpha Tauri. Um, so, yeah, we're still actively involved in those particular events. We're uh, obviously at the A1 ring in two occasions and uh, Germany, and we've got another one lined up for September in uh, Italy. So we still keep active. And uh, you're still you're still a big fan of your motor racing then or your F1? Yeah, I mean, you, you know, once you're into F1, you never really get out of it. So I still actively follow it and still do a few interviews now and again. Are you a Lewis Hamilton fan or are you a Verstappen camp? No, definitely Max. His father drove for me in 03. So I've known Max since he was a little four-year-old. So definitely Max. But no, look, at the end of the day, when you have ran the team for five years and been at the sharp end, you don't tend to really have favorites as such. 
you know, a lot of the drivers, I mean, for instance, Fernando Alonso was one of the drivers I brought into the sport in the end of 2000. He was the Minardi test driver and he drove for me in 2001, two-time world champion, great guy, great friend. So he's my last active still driving driver, but we had people like Mark Webber and we brought in quite a few of the youngsters over the years. And, you know, we've been lucky with the two-seater program to have people like Michael Schumacher drive the car, obviously Max Verstappen. They're the two reigning world champions. Michael drove it in 02 and obviously won all those early zeros championships. So, you know, we've had a, we've had a lot of success over the years. It seems uh, a little pr- prosaic to move on to air cargo here, Paul. Like Daniel <laughs> Ricciardi's just been sacked. I mean, I want <laughs> a fellow Aussie. I mean, uh, I wanted to ask you about that, but I think we, we might be losing our listeners if I carry on too long. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> well, the very, the very quick answer is the driver of Daniel's quality. It didn't work out for him at McLaren, but it has worked out for him everywhere else he's gone. I think you'll see him back in the F1 paddock in 2023. Hope so. He's certainly a big personality. Right. Air cargo, Paul. So I think maybe let's tell our listeners a little bit about your fleet. You've got a bunch of A340 passenger planes which you converted into freighters. How many have you got and when have you converted them? What was the attraction of air cargo for you? So first of all, we've got currently a fleet of 12 A340 600s, which is the longest aircraft in the world. It's an aircraft that we had bought and acquired as part of our aircraft sales and trading division. And we found ourselves, we were operating one aircraft in 2019 in a VIP passenger configuration. We then, when the pandemic happened in March of 20, we were approached by a representative who were looking to do flights on behalf of the NHS. We very, very quickly in 18 days, we got up and running with the first flights from, uh, actually the very first flights were from KL to Bournemouth, but then quickly from China to Bournemouth and on a regular basis for the next two years. We carried in 1.7 billion pieces of PPE into the UK and many, many more to other parts of the world. And at the height of it, we were running six uh, P2Fs with the cargo net to floor conversion, which sadly was knocked on the head on the 31st of July this year. We'll come on to that later. So one aircraft quickly became two, two became three, four, five, six. By the end of 2020, we were operating six aircraft literally flying as many hours and cycles as we could uh, muster crew to achieve. 2021 went well. 2022 obviously started off okay, but then we saw two things that have virtually, I won't say killed because we're still here, but uh, certainly damaged aviation. Obviously Putin and the war, which made fuel just go to insane levels not seen since the 70s. And we also had at the same time, um, the pandemic luckily coming to an end, but for whatever reason, the various authorities, our friends at the ASA, the UK CAA, and even over to Canada to ICAO decided that 31st of July was uh, the time to knock everything on the head. And now we're flying belly only whilst we rapidly finish our conversion to a full freighter, which is virtually it is done, but it's in its final phases of testing It's passed everything. And it has one final test on the 6th of September. So we're pretty close to having the mod to launch ourselves back properly into the market. Okay. And so that will be your entire fleet of 12 that you'll convert fully into freighters. Is that right? Correct. So one and two are done as we speak. Three, four, five, six, and seven will be done throughout the remainder of this year. 
and then the following five, which also need heavy maintenance as well as the conversion, will be done in 2023. And that makes you the biggest UK freighter operator or UK-based freighter operator, I guess, more or less. Yeah, with 12 uh, A34600 wide-body aircraft of a young vintage, it probably puts us in a pretty good position. Paul, where do your cargo operations fit in within your wider aviation group? They um, today represent roughly 50% of the business, but I do see enormous growth for the cargo, especially with Bournemouth Airport. We've got such a good relationship and they're looking to build, they spent millions on this airport to build their cargo hubs up and they're still investing. And together, I think it'll become probably 80% of our business over the next two years. Okay, well, let's just look at that market more generally and on the assumption that you've got this fleet of full freighters. Are you worried about where the market is going? You're entering it at this time when a lot of analysts are saying that the, the rates are, are going to stabilize. As more belly hole capacity comes back, we're going to move to this more normalized market. If I subscribe to that theory, I still wouldn't be worried. I'd just be a little bit nervous, but I don't. Sadly, with the economic state of the UK, and the rest of the world really, or majority of the world really. No, I don't see that belly freight coming back. It's certainly come back this year because people had two years of having no holidays, no vacation, if you want to talk American speak. And basically they've all gone out and done it. But when you have a choice later this year between having your holiday or keeping the heating on in your house, it's a fairly obvious choice what it's going to be. And I do really fear that the economic impact of what we're about to see with rising energy costs, and we've already seen it, our prices have gone through the roof on fuel and disproportionately too, because if you take the price of oil, you could say that it's trebled since 2020. You could say that, that our prices, unfortunately, that we have to pay have more than quadrupled. So there's a little bit of profiteering going on in the marketplace. There's no doubt about that. And that's, I suspect you could transcribe that straight back to household energy the same all these energy companies are making billions not millions and you know the poor old joe public is having to pay the price and in our case the airlines are having to pay the price rewind that back to the actual question do i fear the future i fear that we will see a definitely a coming off from the rates of eight dollars a kilo from china to UK that we saw at the height of the pandemic, and it'll settle more around the four to five mark. But obviously, we're also coming into the last quarter of the year when any aircraft that's able to fly is required for traffic in the last quarter. So I don't fear our last quarter figures at all. Going into next year, we've built, Mike, a very specific crater. Now, we haven't put a big cargo door in the side. But what we have done is designed a, it's quite a, quite a new initiative, actually. We've designed an aircraft that can carry 450 cube, which, and 75 ton, can carry a bit more. We've got lightweight and heavyweight, so we can go up to 90 ton. But nevertheless, we just say an average of 75 ton against our biggest competitor, which is 11.8% less or more efficient on fuel, which is Boeing 777. But of course, they carry 510 as a freighter. So we're in that ballpark. We're within five or 6% of it, but our cost of operation is so much cheaper. Yes, we're 11.8% dearer on fuel, but our capital costs, our engineering costs, our engine costs, everything is so much lower that we feel we've got something that will appeal to the market and 
we're only talking 12 aircraft. So to find 12 aircraft, even a bespoke cargo operation, something like uh, Alibaba or an Amazon or any of the other carriers for that reason, would not be that hard. And we've got the loading and unloading down now to sub three hours. It's a really slick operation. So I feel really confident that irrespective of where rates go, that we will, because the service that we're able to deliver, and that's where we've come into Bournemouth Airport, we are able to deliver a fantastic service. We've constantly, during the pandemic, constantly beat times from other flights going into Heathrow and Gatwick. We wiped the floor with them. You know, we would land here at 7 or 8 a.m. in the morning and the freight would be in the NHS warehouse just by 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Customs cleared, all done, delivered. There's a lot to be said from operating where you are the eight biggest customer, where you have a can-do attitude and where you have people that want to make it work. And we've proved that over the last two and a half years and we're still proving it. As you mentioned, with the end of COVID, or we'll, we'll see what happens this winter, but that PPE market and some of that, that market that set you up initially, if that's gone, where is your market in the future? Where, and what routes are you operating on? Where, where do you see that, that particular configuration working for you? Well, at the moment, we're operating, and we always were throughout the pandemic, we're operating North American routes on behalf of DHL. We're operating several routes from here to China on behalf of various brokers and end users. And that market, we've still got nine active contracts. So technically nine of the 12 aircraft could be put into work the minute their cargo converted. And I see no reason for that to slack off. You know, you, you've still got stuff that has to travel on an urgent basis. And yes, we can't compete with the millions of tons that come by shipping, but we all know what's happening to shipping at the moment. It's not that easy anymore. So there is more than enough out there to satisfy us and Bournemouth is our hub. We try in every way possible to actually route the flights via Bournemouth. Yes, if we have to, if we do a Los Angeles from Shenzhen in China, so be it. But the main target here, because it's our base, because it's our maintenance base, because we work, we feel it's not a partnership, but we feel we work in a partnership with the airport. We grew together on the cargo side out of the pandemic. The things that we did to make it happen with that can-do attitude has got us, well, we were voted the best deliverer of PPE in the country and not just once. I mean, other people send people here to train to learn how we do it. So we must be doing something right. Paul, we'll come back to Bournemouth a bit later and your role within the UK and UK logistics. But if I may, you mentioned some of the changes in regulations that had affected you prior to you embarking on these full conversions. And just a little bit of background. So you previously were operating what people have called uh, praises. And it was a general sort of view that when rates fell, they would become economically unviable. The per kilo cost was a bit higher to operate them. But then we've got these new regulations. There's this cargo in cabin. So these type of operations were allowed during the pandemic. But then this all changed at the end of July, didn't it? What was the thinking there and what's your view on that? Well, let me just correct one thing, Mike. I don't actually think that we were uncompetitive, right? So we didn't do, as you called it, the pre-freighter. We did initially just for weeks, literally, while we got our first STC through supplementary type certificate, which allowed us to get all the seats out and to put the net to floor. Now, because of the sheer size of the A340 interior, we were competitive with most other aircraft. Now, 
this full conversion does give us another 20% capacity, but we were doing quite okay. I mean, we were taking the same load on a NHS flight as what a 747 was taking with seats in it. So we were all right, actually. And of course, we're obviously 30% cheaper than a 747 on operating costs. So no, I think our kilo rate was always all right. Coming back to the politics side of thing, yes. When we went for the STC in April of 2020, and it was granted, I think, July of 2020, there were conditions imposed and they were thought through properly by the authorities of what the risk factors were to having cargo in the cabin. And at all times, we kept three hostesses on board on fire watch. We had six sets of fire uh, fighting equipment on board the aircraft, et cetera, et cetera. And so there was never any risk. But in the days of the granting of that STC, there was a 2000 flight hour restriction on each aircraft. Now that was a safety assessment and I don't disagree with that. Fair enough. We got nowhere near that. And what I disagree with is the political reasons behind this 31st of July date. Now, given that the world has gone into turmoil post-Russia, we've had to fly between, depending on our routes, between four and six hours further to avoid Russian airspace. That then puts the A340, which is one of the longest ranged aircraft in the world, into its own because it doesn't need to tech stop somewhere. It's still able to cope with that diversion. So to go and ground everybody just arbitrarily on that date, to not look at whether somebody's invested tens of millions of dollars into a proper final freighter conversion, which we have, and we've now achieved it, was a little bit, I think, unfair and short-sighted. And, you know, we had various discussions with the CAA who said, look, we won't let you fall off a cliff. It'll be okay. Well, guess what? <laughs> we fell off the cliff. But anyway, that's the politics, which I'm not going to go into in detail because you'll you get me really telling you what I think of those authorities, which probably won't. Please do, Paul. Please do. Uh, I, I've got to deal with them, Mike. If I didn't have to deal with them, be my guest. <laughs> Off air. I won't tell anyone, honest. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about Russia as you brought it up. The invasion of Ukraine back in February. How has that affected your operations or particularly your operating costs, that extra flying time? Oh, it's sent our operating costs almost double. It has trebled the fuel price from where it was on the 22nd of February, but it's just been so damaging because people probably don't realize how big Russian airspace is. So even going to America, you still have to avoid, say, for instance, you go from Shenzhen in China to LAX, you've still got to do a little bit of a diversion around Russian airspace because it stretches all the way to the border with Alaska. So it's pretty damaging and that extra four or five hours is where you are then added to the fuel traveling the costs and that's the sad thing because well i i believe it's unnecessary but you know we're far be it from uh, from little people like us and you mike to be able to say anything against the greater bigger picture but until and unless that's solved aviation is going to be tricky and not just for us you know, the knock-on effect of the aviation industry is that people are not going to have, in most countries, people are not going to have that disposable income that they need to go flying. And that then puts us back to what happened in the pandemic. People were stopped from flying. And what did we see? 
The UK, North America routes were decimated. Well, the UK everywhere routes were decimated, but the worldwide routes that then give rise to this belly freight that everybody is so hopeful on, I, I don't subscribe to that. I don't think that after the last quarter of this year that we're going to see in the first X amount of months next year until and unless this Russian's problem is solved, and who knows how long that'll go on for, I don't really see that we're going to uh, see this great demand that we've certainly seen this year in air travel continue. I want it to for the industry's sake, but I just don't see it. So that cost of living crisis combined with these geopolitical tensions is really going to bite in your view then? Sadly, I do, Mike. I think um, that the amount of belly freight that is available in the marketplace today, I'm not sure is going to continue if times get as hard as what the economists are predicting they're going to get, because people faced with the choice of heating their house or buying their food or having a holiday, I'm sure I know which one they're going to choose. You guys have secured a minority investment by uh, Priority One Logistics Holding, which is a newly formed subsidiary of US-based Priority One Holdings. Correct. What's the, what's the benefit of this for you and what, what does Priority One bring to the table? Well, the benefit is that A, they've brought some customers, which is uh, very good, but also uh, they've bought investment that's allowed us to A, suffer the losses that we're suffering at the moment, but B, continue to invest in the cargo program, which we're doing. And it's regrettable that, as I say, what, what stopped us or tipped us into losses was the stopping of the uh, flying on the 31st of July. But we are finished now on the program. So really now it's just a case of the several million investment in each plane to actually do the mod, but not the tens of millions investment that we uh, had to do to get it to that stage. So we're pretty happy we're in a good position. And we do feel that with only 12 aircraft, I mean, we could grow it to 20, but we're not really planning to. With only 12 aircraft and a very bespoke tightly controlled operation, largely out of Bournemouth, where we can deliver the final mile quicker than anywhere else. We feel there's more than enough business out there. And probably, to be absolutely honest, we've already got the customers to support those 12 aircraft. We've got nine signed contracts that are multi-year contracts, and they're largely operating in and out of Bournemouth. A couple are from China to America, but in all, we're pretty relaxed. Uh, you're not too worried about some of the economic projections for Europe and uh, are pretty horrific. And even the US, some people are saying it's going to go in, into recession soon. Yeah, the US is a bit better protected. I mean, if the US goes into screaming recession, it won't really be because of Russia. Uh, I mean, that'll have an effect, but don't forget fracking comes into its own at $65 a barrel. And we're well north of that and have been all year. But so they, they do have much bigger ability to dig themselves out of the energy crisis side of things. Now, that's not to say that their trillions of debt hasn't got to be repaid, but a lot of that was actually ramped up in both the last financial crisis of 0809 and also in the support that was given during the pandemic. So I don't see the US, if it does go into recession, I don't see it staying there for too long. Um, obviously it depends. If Trump gets back in, I just give up and say that the world's four-letter word with an ED on the end of it. Um, but yeah, that barring Trump getting back in, I think America will stay stable. Okay. You mentioned Bournemouth there, and it just struck me that I may be 
I should explain Bournemouth to our international listeners. About normally about forty percent of our listeners here are, are in based in the US. In fact, Bournemouth is a, a relatively small airport on the south coast of England. Why did you choose Bournemouth to, as a base for your operations? Well, firstly, because we've been here for thirty years. It's our main base. We have another one up in the Midlands, but this is by far our main base. And secondly, because of the can-do attitude. I mean, get back to March of 2020, Bournemouth Airport, as many of your listeners and indeed people around the world will have seen, had for, uh, British Airways aircraft stored here en masse, some 55, I think it was at the height of it, aircraft stored from 747s to, to every other type of aircraft that British Airways operate. So it went from that to us operating cargo, many of the passenger terminal support staff switched across to cargo and with being small, sometimes small can be good because it means you can actually do things that bigger airports can't. Let's just give you an example here. We would have a flight land on a Sunday morning at six o'clock in the morning or seven o'clock in the morning, and the freight would be delivered into the NHS warehouse in the Midlands by four o'clock in the afternoon. And that's all uh, 11 45 foot trucks worth of product. Why? Because on site, we've got the customs support. We've got the customs agent support. We've got the airport support. We've got our own staff of 300 odd people and we just make it happen. Now, same flight goes to Heathrow and there's nothing wrong with Heathrow, but it's a big, big entity and it turns up there. It's not going to get offloaded and cleared on that Sunday. It'll be in a queue. The trucks will be in a queue. And we've actually done this. We've seen flights that did go in there arrive in the NHS warehouses on Tuesday afternoon. And that's really all you need to say about it. Um, same day delivery or two, three day delivery up to the customer. And the customer chose us. That is the, the age old criticism of air cargo supply chains that the, the flight might be quick, but everything on either end isn't. Correct. And, you know, if you want to call it final mile, our final mile delivery was second to no one. And, and I'm not just saying in the UK, I, I dare say I could probably make this statement without proof, but I could probably make this statement and say that I don't think any other carrier anywhere could have beaten that. And, and we didn't, we lost nothing. I mean, the aircraft would turn up 30 people would descend upon it. It'd be unloaded in sub two hours at the same time. Another 20 people were loading all the trucks. It just couldn't have been done quicker. We even had one, Mike, where we had the NHS tell us that they actually run out of a particular product while we were en route to China. And we changed the flight and routed it to KL, to Kuala Lumpur, um, picked up what they were desperately, desperately needing and had it back here the next day. There's not too many people can do that. And sometimes you have to be small to be able to do things like that. Yeah, very true. Very true. Um, in the UK, you mentioned some of the problems at Heathrow, but I mean, there's bigger problems, isn't there? We've had a summer of strikes. We've had these nightmarish headlines about delays at airports, not just in the UK, across Europe. And then we've got the thing that no one wants to talk about, and it's Brexit. How does Brexit affect what you're doing? Well, it's devastating for the aviation industry in every way, shape and form. You've got the Europeans who hate us. You've got the CAA who's struggling. It's not looking good and it's going to get worse because we are on the last phases of a two-year transition, which expires on the 31st of December. And we have literally life-threatening problems on the 1st of January. 
in all aspects of regulation. We have EASA on the one side because we're running, sorry, I should have mentioned this earlier, Mike. We run two AOCs. We run the Maltese AOC under the 9H register with three aircraft currently on it and the UK CAA AOC with four aircraft currently on it. And if I tell you that what Brexit's done is it's separated EASA from the CAA, but it's not something that after 20 or 30 years of building can be separated in two and let alone when there's not a good feeling between the two parties. So we have problems coming like licensing of pilots, like training of pilots, like supply of spare parts. And all of these things should not be put into the political arena as they're about to, or they have already been, and they're about to be in a much bigger way because the little old aircraft just knows that it needs a qualified pilot. It needs good, proper maintenance, and it needs regular attention. Now, if suddenly you bring politics into play, which is what's happening right now as we speak and is going to get much worse after the 31st of December, you have a situation where you have two regulators. One says, no, you can't fit my parts to your aircraft. And then the other one says, well, if you're saying that, then you can't fit your parts to our aircraft. And then along the way, they say, well, actually, the worldwide recognized FAA, well, you can't fit them either. It's so dangerous that you could, in the extreme, see just about every aircraft in the UK grounded after the 1st of January next year. How likely do you think that is? At the moment, well, we were told by the UK CAA, quote, and this is a quote, we will not let you fall off the cliff at the end of July. We'll find a way. That's an actual quote. Well, we fell off the cliff and they didn't find a way. So we're being told now that, you know, there'll be agreements in place by the 31st of December, but you wouldn't blame me to not have any faith in that statement. And that's not blaming the individuals in the CAA. It just isn't enough of them. And IASA are being pretty uncooperative. So I'm not going to get into the real politics because it's not my place, but as a person that suffers from the politics, you know, you asked me about Brexit. It was the biggest disaster that could ever have happened for aviation. End of story. And what I fear, what I really fear, is that we don't let the politics get in the way of aircraft safety. And at the end of the day, any regulator is supposed to be out there with safety of his paramount yeah. and primary concern. And I don't feel that that's what's happening today. Sadly. Even after we've had Brexit, do you think it could have been managed a lot better? It sounds like that's what you're saying. Well, if you, if you accept the fact that the people voted for it, then you can't, if you're going to say you're a democracy, you can't turn around and say, well, you didn't know what you're voting for. But so many things that were campaigned on Brexit did turn out not to be true. Simple fact. And in aviation, you had a lot of the CAA, the original traditional British CAA, have now devolved and had devolved over the years. An awful lot of their ability to regulate had been transferred to Europe. So, so much of certain sections of the CAA had virtually very little people in them because that function was purely taken over by IASA. And that's fine until you reverse it. And you have to ask the question, is two years long enough to recruit and to get the top people you need 
into all those positions. Because if you're separating as a regulator, you're no longer joined at the hip with 27 other countries worth of regulators. There's some pretty big boots to fill. If you want to say, well, from any date, be it the 1st of January 21 or be it the 1st of January 23, you are going to operate solely as an independent regulator who's fully staffed to cover all aspects of its uh, regulatory responsibility. And I don't think that's going to work. I know that today the CAA is not manned enough to do this. They're just not. You know, we were told on our mod, which is going through in the ARSA approval, we were told we wanted to submit a dual one under the CAA. And they simply said, if you put that to us, it'll be 12 months before we could have the manpower to do it. So no, they're not ready. And this one over the spare parts, Mike, to be honest, you could stop every aircraft as each aircraft breaks down. You won't have any parts to fit to it. And it's not a, well, I'm probably getting too deep into this for your listeners and it's probably not fair, but all I'll say is watch this space because if something's not done in the next few months, the UK carriers en masse are going to fall off a major cliff on the 1st of January. Now, that's very interesting, Paul. You've been in aviation in the UK since 1986. If I may go back to then, if you were, if you were starting in a, an airline or you get into the aviation industry now, if you go back to your early younger self, would you still choose the UK given all these challenges that you've just mentioned? Because back then it was part of the European Union. Or would you look somewhere else? Would you look in Northern Europe? Well, actually back then it wasn't part of the European Union from an aviation point of view. Um, they didn't, you know, sort of start transiting to a full EASA until the mid-90s. We are operating under originally a CAA approval, then it became a JAA approval in the early 90s, and then it became in the ASA approval. Um, so it was a slow integration, and it took them years to do that, which just gives more strength to the argument that if it took years, like six or eight years to make it happen, what makes you think you can undo it in two years? And to answer your question directly, yes, I would still be in aviation in the UK because I love the UK. It's been my home for the last 36 years. And it's still a place to be in business, even in aviation. But I can tell you now, I'm, I'm very happy that I'm closer to the end in the beginning, because with all of the politics that have crept into it, I would, uh, yeah, I, I would not like to be a 30 year old doing this now. Paul Stoddart, thanks for coming on to the Lodestar podcast today. That was fantastic. Thanks, Mike. I'd like to thank TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider, and Zenita, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. A shout out to OEC's Jason Hay for his marvellous baritone introduction to this podcast. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon.